Welcome to Film Studies Bling Bling, a podcast about the big and small pearls and treasures of film studies. My name is Anna Louise. I am a postdoc researcher at the Film University in Potsdam, Germany, and I'm producing this podcast. In every episode of Film Studies Bling Bling, there is a bling of the month. This is a person from film studies I'd like to introduce to you. In this episode, our film studies guest is Jan Christopher Horak. We will talk in the main about his blog Archival Spaces. There is a news chapter in every episode. In today's chapter, we have an opportunity to hear about the recently published book Film and Domestic Space. I'm happy to be able to talk to the two editors, Miriam De Rosa and Stefano Bachiera. And finally, there is the Dear Diary chapter in every episode. It deals with everything that moves and concerns me in relation to my research. In the last two episodes, against the background of the corona pandemic, I talked with colleagues about the social responsibility of film researchers and about the effects of the pandemic on research and teaching. Today, I stick to the topic I discussed with Jan Christopher Horak, namely writing for a blog. It's lovely to have you with me. And here is my bling of the month, Jan Christopher Horak. Chris, thank you very much for taking part in my podcast. My pleasure. Frankly, I find it difficult to introduce you. Such a productive academic life cannot really be summed up, but let's give it a try. You studied in Boston and did your doctorate at the Institute of Communication at the Westphalian Wilhelms University in Münster. In the mid-1980s, you were first assistant professor, then associate professor, and finally professor for film studies at the University of Rochester in New York State. During this time, you were simultaneously curator of the film archive at the George Eastman Museum in Rochester. But then you returned to Germany in 1994 to take over the position of director of the film museum in Munich from Enno Patalas. From 1998 to 2000, you were founding director of the archives and collections at Universal Studios in Los Angeles. Afterwards, you were curator of the Hollywood Entertainment Museum in Hollywood. And from 2007 until last year, you were director of the UCLL Film and Television Archive. And in addition to your work as curator and museum director, you've also continued to teach as guest and visiting professor at numerous universities. You have published a vast amount of reviews and scholarly essays, served on the editorial boards of numerous academic journals, edited translations and books, and wrote more than 10 books. Looking at your publishing activities, one could say that you are an expert on German filmmakers in American exile and German film history. Furthermore, you published on the intersection of photography and film and the designer Saul Bass. Recently, you have also dealt with black cinema and Latin American cinema in Los Angeles. Whew. Okay, so tell us first about your three most important written works. What publications you are particularly proud of? Which of your books took the longest to write or that you remember for other reasons? Well, I think the first would have to be my dissertation, uh, Anti-Nazi Filme der Deutschsprachigen Emigration von Hollywood, which after it was published became a, a kind of bestseller for the academic press because it was one of the, the first 
books to deal with all those German Jewish refugees who had left Berlin and Vienna and Budapest because of the rise of Hitler in 1933 and ended up in Hollywood. And at the time I was doing that research in the late 70s and early 80s in Germany, there were not a whole lot of people who had uh, taken on this topic. And the things that had been written, especially about the anti-Nazi films that were made by these emigres, was uh, relatively cliched because the survivors themselves really played down the importance of these films. So that book really, uh, and I'm not the one who said that, others have said, almost began to establish German exile studies as an academic discipline in Germany. And there have been, of course, numerous other people who have followed in and, and published in this area. So I think I would consider the first. Then, you know, uh, I think my book, Creating a New Black Cinema, about the so-called L.A. Rebellion filmmakers in Los Angeles, I'm really proud of that project. Both the book, which I, I edited with two colleagues and was based on a, a seminar we did, but really the whole project, which included exhibitions, a touring show. Uh, we ended up doing a DVD. And most importantly, preserving the work of these filmmakers. You know, I spent my whole career mostly working with filmmakers and film historical topics of people that were no longer around. In this case, the, these were filmmakers who were still alive, some of them still working, but who had really kind of dropped out of history. And so this exhibition that we did in 2011 and subsequently has really revived their careers. And they they travel all the time now giving lectures on their films. And, and of course, at UCLA, we made new copies of the films. And so we're able to get the work out for teaching purposes on a three DVD set. And so that you know, and I've become friends with all of those filmmakers too. And so that is as far as just impact, because it just didn't affect me, it affected so many other people. And that's, that's so I'm very proud of that, that work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, also, I mean, after that, it gets hard. I mean, I was, I spent a lot of years researching Saul Bass and I, and I've gotten a lot of compliments for that book. And it was fun writing that book. And, and of course, the Latin American Los Angeles project did, resulted in two different books. And both of them, I think, again, moved the field forward because Spanish language cinema in the United States was really not on the map of American film history. And here we had a system of production, distribution, and exhibition of Spanish-language films in the United States that really no one had ever talked about as part of American history, unlike, of course, African-American cinema, even the, the race film era in the 1930s, um, or the Yiddish film production in New York in the 1930s. Those were constituted as minority cinemas, yet the Latin American 
connection through Los Angeles of Spanish filmmaking was not on this general map, and now it is. I would say that despite your publications, the work on exhibitions is also very important in your academic life and very impressive as well. Which exhibitions would you say were important milestones for you personally? Well, I think the very first exhibition I ever did in a large exhibition in, in uh, Stuttgart and Essen and Zurich and Hamburg in 1979, which was a film and photo uh, in the 1920s. That was a reconstruction of a famous Werkbund exhibition that had been done in 1979, like, excuse me, 1929 by uh, Hans Richter and And so I and my colleague, who was, a, who was curator of the photography department at the Falkwang Museum, Ute Eskelsen, we organized this 50-year anniversary exhibition. And uh, the exhibition was important because I ended up doing a lot of research on this period about the exhibition, putting together the program, but also reconceptualized avant-garde history in a different way. In other words, before that time, if you look at most avant-garde histories, they really only talk about individual artists and they valorize the work of individual artists. But they don't really talk about avant-garde film as also in some ways a system of exhibition production, exhibition, and distribution. And that's what I did, especially in the catalog and in later writing, is to talk about avant-garde films as having, first of all, all of these film clubs and, and sites where films were shown. They were often made independently by artists who were also filmmakers. And there were systems of distribution for this work. And so seeing it in that kind of context was something no one had ever done for any avant-garde history. And of course, I followed that up with my history of the American or the early American avant-garde from this period, from the 20s and 30s, which again, did not exist in, in American avant-garde histories. American avant-garde history began with Maya Darren in 1945, and so all of the films made before that time from the teens and 20s and 30s were, were just not considered a part of American avant-garde history. At best, they were just talked of as, as, as fake or disingenuous copies of European avant-garde films, which I proved was not true. So that book also had a very big influence. And so I did exhibitions on that when I was at Eastman House. And it also got me to this connection between photography and film, which has, again, been a thread through my writing. I would say that in your academic and curatorial career, you're really dedicated, not only, but there is a, a very strong focus on film heritage and to make film heritage visible to the public, right? And to really find new perspectives um, on film heritage. Well, I think that's natural because working, you know, if you're an academic and you're teaching at university, That's one form of communication, and but it's a very formal that has its own rules in German, of course, much more than even in English. But there are rules of discourse, etc. 
but it's the, that kind of work does not necessarily get out into the general public. Whereas when I finished my PhD, uh, it was uh, in the mid-1980s and wanted to come back to the United States. I could not actually find a job in academia. And so I ended up taking a job in this museum. I had interned there 10 years earlier. And so I learned that working in museums, of course, you're having a discussion with the public. And the terms of that discussion are slightly different, but no less important. And so I've always thought that you know, as a film historian, I need to be able to talk to different publics in different ways. And so the exhibitions, are for, and especially, for example, when I mentioned like the L.A. Rebellion, yes, there's the book, but the shows and we did a catalog. And so a lot of people got to see that work and it, it had a much larger impact than if it had just been shown in seminars at, at university. And I think that's important. That's the way you really make a much bigger change in the world and, and advance our knowledge of things is by talking in these other forms, whether it's um, museums or cinematechs or just uh, or film festivals, um, those that's a different kind of programming, but also allows you to develop a film historical discourse with the public at large. Visibility to the public. I think your blog, Archival Spaces, belongs in this context as well. Um, first, tell us when you started blogging and where your blog, Archival Spaces, was virtually located, because there have been, so to speak, different homes for your blog over the years. Yeah, well, it's it's funny because I never really thought of myself as a was going to blog. I knew other people blogged, and then in two thousand eight, um, my longtime colleague and friend Patricia Zimmerman, who has written very important works on amateur and uh, films and documentaries, she as at Ithaca College, and she founded a festival called the uh, Finger Lakes Environmental Film Festival. And to kick that off, they set up a website and they invited a number of people to write blogs about all kinds of things, so in some cases environmental issues. And I was asked to do something on archiving. And so I decided to name my blog Archival Spaces. And so I started the blog there. It was, um, they actually paid me to do it, which no one's paying me now to do the blog. But I started there, but it was relatively irregular for the first year or two when I was doing it on the Ithaca site. Uh, that Those sites uh, and those blogs are still live. But then... By that time, I had become director of UCLA Film and Television Archive, and we decided to, in 2011, to, in connection with this L.A. Rebellion exhibition, to really upgrade our own UCLA Film and Television site. And that's when I decided to move my blog there to move to drive traffic to the site because, of course, I wanted people to see other things on the site, the LA Rebellion or other programming. So I started doing the blog there, and then I started also 
regularizing it. So every two weeks, Friday, I publish a, published a blog, and my goal was to really give a little more of an insider's view of the work of archivists, and especially moving image archivists, but also the way archiving and film preservation intersect with film history and with history, and how one influences the other and is dependent on the other, because unless films are available and people can see them, then no one's going to write about them. And at the same time, it was uh, true that for many years, archivists looked to film historians to tell them what to preserve. So given the, in sometimes narrow canon of art cinema that was being promulgated by film historians, archivists remained on that path until, you know, they started moving in other directions. And I, one of my goals as both an archivist, preservationist, and historian has been to really as we say, bust the cannon, open up the cannon, look for other areas that are, are still in darkness on the film historical map and reevaluate that. And in, also in that process, make those films available for other researchers and scholars and the public to see and rediscover these works of history that should not have be forgotten or lost. This is quite a clear concept or profile for a blog. Given that you're working on this blog for so many years now, I suppose that the content and the approach has nevertheless changed over the years a bit. Or is am I wrong with this impression? Well, it's, it's not changed in the sense that, you know, it it's my blog, so I do write about things that really interest me. They have to interest me, otherwise, otherwise I'm not going to write about them. But it is true that, you know, while I was, especially the the, the 10 year, uh, or uh, yeah, about 10 years that I was blogging on the UCLA site, that I was, I was representing not just myself, but also uh, as director of the archive. And so I had an institutional obligation to talk about things that the archive was doing. And promoting aspects of archival work at UCLA and etc while also commenting on aspects of archival work in the field at large because you know we are a very a large community um, both nationally there are maybe about a hundred different moving image archives in the United States and then there are several hundred archives in the rest of the world and you know for many years as director of the archive I was also a member of FIAF the Fédération Internationale des Archives du Film and so that organization meets once a year to exchange things and of course I had very close relations also from my time when I was director of the Film Museum in Munich with my German colleagues and that's continued so there was that institutional aspect now of course Since I've retired and I'm still writing this blog, which I've moved to a, my own site now, I'm much freer to pick topics. And basically, again, though, interested mostly in film historical topics and, and things like that. So, 
but also archival issues. So the last blog I did, the, the last published blog was about the Orphans Symposium that just happened online because it couldn't happen, you know, face to face because of COVID, uh, which has been going on for uh, almost 20 years now. And so it is a very important event in among archivists every year. What is the difference between writing for a scientific article and your own blog? Is it is the writing faster? Do you find you can have a more relaxed approach? Yeah, it is. It's certainly a more relaxed approach. I don't have to footnote every single source. And my style is a little bit looser because I'm, I'm really trying to commute specific information on specific areas to a general public. So, you know, I do read information here and there and I pull it together, but I'm not necessarily quoting my sources. And I'm also not writing in quite Uh, using the formalisms of academic writing, it's, you know, it's more of a, a chat in that sense for me. And hopefully it gives access to people. And most importantly, when I'm writing, doing academic writing, I'm usually writing for specialists who, where I can assume that there is a lot of background knowledge. Whereas in the blog, I try very hard To, to make it accessible in that, that you do not need that knowledge or if there's information you need, I provide it in the blog so you understand what I'm talking about. So let's imagine um, there are some film scholars listening now to this podcast episode who are thinking about starting to blog themselves. What can you say to them? Are there specific quality criteria or ideas or whatever uh, you can address to them? Um, how to start? <laughs> Well, I think there are, you know, there are, there, you know, I read, for example, David Bordwell and Kristen Thompson have a blog. They've, they've been blogging longer than I have, and I read their blog. There are other people blogging who are film historians. And I think it, it really, it, 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 you need to have, a, as you put it, a, a clear concept of what your blog should be. And it can be specialized. You know, there are, There's so many areas of, of media history, of the way media is changing and developing. And so there are, there are lots of areas that people could focus on if, especially if it is also a part of their academic work and make it more accessible to a larger audience. Chris, in, in recent years, open science has become increasingly present as a new culture or scientific movement even. There is, for example, a blog, another blog, on the topic of open science, especially in film and media studies, the open media studies blog. And I would venture to say that for you as curator of numerous exhibitions and as a blogger, opening up to society, I mean, we talked about this already, has always been at the core of your work. Are film museums and other museums pioneers Of open science, are museums, so to speak, the analog precursors of the digital open science movement? I'm I'm not sure. There, are, I think there are an, certainly an aspect of it. I'm not sure I would consider them precursors because there have been writers already going back, you know, over a hundred years who have sought to to open up their work. So. For example, I a while ago did some work on Hugo Münsterberg, who's a German scholar who then ended up at Harvard, wrote one of the first important books on film theory in the United States in 1916. But he also published popular science books, nonfiction books, 
including one on how juries behave in jury trials that was published in the, in, I think, 1908 and is still in print. Still in print because it's such an important book. So I think there, this notion of, of popular science has been around for a long time and there have been journals and magazines, popular magazines, certainly uh, nonfiction books that have, have developed in this area. You know, when you ask this question about open science, I, um, I wasn't quite sure what you were talking about, so I had to look it up and went on the net and looked up open science. And, and so my understanding of open science is, of course, the making available of research in public forms and especially now through the net in digital form. And so I feel I've been kind of a practitioner of that almost a, a large portion of my, even my academic writing, I have now put on as PDFs online on uh, academia.edu. So pr- pretty much anything I've written is available there for people to study. And so I think that that's in the spirit of open science while not being formally a part of, you know, these various websites, I think that, or this is Center for Open Science, I guess is, it's called in 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 Virginia. So I think there it's there is a long tradition of uh, to answer your question a long tradition of academics reaching out to beyond the academic community in that way. In this and that's in the spirit of open science. This episode will be published on 20th June. What will be on your blog archival spaces then? What kind of blog post are you currently writing? Well, I, I have two blogs that are now completed that I have. A, one will be published, I think, uh, the 17th of June. Um, mm-hmm. and that is, that one is on a film from 1970 called The Strawberry Statement, which was a, an American film that was a total flop, total failure in the United States because it was about the student movement at that time made by Hollywood and most Americans, including myself, thought it was not really a very genuine film and and typical Hollywood. Well, after talking a number of years ago to a colleague in Germany in Leipzig, Jörg Schweinitz, he told me that this film in a German-dubbed version called Blutige Erdbeeren, became a cult film in the German Democratic Republic. A cult film that even today, and is considered one of the most important films of his generation in the 1970s. And so that that notion <laughs> really surprised me. And so I I wrote about that because, of course, it's something no American would ever know that this you know, this film would have such an afterlife in a dubbed version. And I conclude, of course, this is important to know that we should not, as archivists, be thinking just about preserving the original versions. But in some cases, when a film has this kind of impact in a dubbed version, that version should also be preserved because it becomes a part of the cultural memory of the country of the dubbed version. So this mm. film, The Strawberry Statement, is is central to the cultural memory of young East Germans in the 1970s and should therefore be preserved for that very, very reason alone. So, and then the blog after that, because we 
it's been 80 years since the fall of France, is going to be about uh, Leon Feuchtwanger's book, The Devil in France. Uh, I've been interested in Leon Feuchtwanger for a long time. And so I finally read this book, which I hadn't read before, and talked about him. He was interned in an uh, internment camp and miraculously escaped. But of course, many anti-Nazi German intellectuals and writers did not escape. And some of them were then handed by the French over to the Nazis and then sent to concentration camps and and killed. So uh, it's an important historical moment that I will be reminding audiences of. And despite these current blog posts, this is my final question for you, Chris. Mm -hmm. Uh, What larger project are you currently working on? Um, My big book project right now is that, you know, we started a moving image archive studies program in UCLA, which doesn't exist anymore. But there are programs, university programs to train archivists in moving images in many different places, in Berlin, of course, at Konrad Wolf, and uh, in Amsterdam, and in London. So, But there is no textbook that is kind of an introduction to to moving image archiving. So that's what I, and I taught that for many years. So I'm now hoping to relatively quickly do a book that's going to be a, a first textbook reader for students interested in entering into this field of moving image archiving. When can we read this book? Next year? We'll see. I'm negotiating with a publisher right now, and I've I've got two chapters done. I'm hoping to have the book finished before the end of the year. And so 21, but 22 at the latest. So we are looking forward to read this book. Thank you very much, Chris, for this little chat about all the amazing work you're doing. And yeah, we are looking forward to read additional books in the future and maybe about blogging, who knows, and open science. Thank you very much. (laughs) Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Anna. This is the news chapter. The book, Film and Domestic Space, Architectures, Representations, Dispositifs, has just been published by Edinburgh University Press, edited by Miriam de Rosa and Stefano Bachiera. Hello, you two. Hello. Very nice to have you on my podcast. As well as yourselves, uh, 12 other authors have contributed chapters to the anthology. The book goes back to a workshop, Cinema and Domestic Space, which took place at a conference of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies in 2016. Well, well, film and space, what a topic. Um, It's possible to find a huge amount of very elaborate academic work in this field. In particular, the city in film is a topic that has occupied film studies, I would say, for decades. Siegfried Krakauer and Walter Benjamin can be regarded as the founding fathers of this particular orientation of film studies, exploring the manifold relationships between city and film, and especially the characteristics of diegetic cities. We have numerous inferential works, especially on the representation of the city in film. For example, we can find substantial works on the representation of the city in the films of particular directors, or, on the other hand, the representation of a particular city, such as Los Angeles or London, Paris, whatever, but seen through the work of different filmmakers and over time too. 
this great interest in space has, I would say, already gained a new dynamic through new film history and film history as archaeology. Here we see a turn to the early architecture of cinema and the intrusion of places of film production and distribution into urban landscapes. This new interest in the physical spaces of film production and reception has resulted in an upsurge of works dedicated to infrastructural analysis. However, the interest of film studies in film and space has been further intensified by the disappearance of the cinema as the dominant dispositive for the viewing of films and the subsequent multiplication through digitalization of the places where we encounter film images today. Francesco Cassetti describes this process with the words the explosion of cinema. Under the phrase spatial turn, film studies have been asking for several years now, in the words of Malte Hagener, where is cinema today? The spatial turn is thus also characterized by a great interest in the physical and bodily conditions of film reception. But the work done under this umbrella term have had a somewhat different focus in comparison to either new film history or film history as archaeology. It emphasizes rather the notion of performativity underlying our experience of film in this post-cinematographic epoch. Your anthology is, as you argue yourself, located against the background of the spatial turn in film studies. You contribute to this academic discourse by emphasizing two new aspects. Firstly, you shift the focus from the city to domestic space, a space which, as you demonstrate in your introduction, has already been examined in a very revealing way by Elizabeth Bronfman, Pamela robertson Wojcik, and David Ruddes, but which has received too little analytical attention when compared to the numerous works on the city and film I've mentioned above. The second new aspect refuses to remain to the mode of representational works that is in the pure occupation with the diegetic domestic space, but also thinks about the off-screen space, the physical domestic space. So after this wordy introduction, this is where the concept of the dispositives comes into play in your book. So here's my first question to you. Please explain the connection between domestic space and dispositive. All right, I think I can take this one. So first, thanks for having us on this wonderful uh, podcast. We're really happy to be able to, to talk about our book. Uh, and thanks for the question. I suppose that, yeah, that, that of the dispositive is really the aspect we address in the book that I feel possibly more compelled to deal with because it has been one of my main research interests for a long time, I guess forever. I think to answer this, I shall go back to something you just mentioned, and that is the idea of this sort of dom um, special turn of film studies. So as you say, there had been a lot of work around space, But to me, what the spatial turn introduces is a different consideration of the spatial element on the whole. I guess this is not necessarily in, turn or in terms of a specific kind of space like the city. So, for instance, not just the urban or, or the domestic space, which, yeah, obviously happens to be uh, quite timely at the minute. It is important to stress 
that you are not interested in sidelining the representative works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I suppose that the Spachelton was the reason why it was so interest for, uh, for interesting to us and I'm mentioning this to answer a question on the dispositive is that it, it actually brings about a broader and more profound reflection centered on the role, the function and the value of space in relation to moving images. So, yeah, this brings us back to the dispositive because this concept returns to foreground precisely when spatiality ceases to be something that just pertains representation, so only the text, for instance, and it is acknowledged as a context where th this text is, is actually experienced. So in a way, we could say that without a focus on the experience of text, perhaps we wouldn't have had that such specific and multifaceted interest on space. And in our book, we pair domestic space and dispositive because we believe that they have lots of aspects in common, lots of similarities, and that ultimately the places where we live in are dispositives. So in a way, there is a parallel that we try to, to sketch in the book that brings together the dwelled space, so the space that we, we all experience and uh, the dispositive as we know it in, in film studies. And it became obvious for you that there was the need for a sort of bridge between this concept of home and house as a dispositive and this huge amount of works dealing with the representation of space in films. And this bridge is the concept of architecture. So one could say there's a specific concept of architecture functioning as a kind of bridge between the two modes. Maybe, Stefano, can you, can you explain this? Well, you know, films do not, To live in a vacuum. Uh, the relationship between architecture and cinema has been very deep, very strong, uh, and persistent since the beginning of film uh, up to now. The two managed to influence each other. Architecture managed to dictate some of the set, of the decor of film, both for the built-in environment and then from the real environment. In the same way, of course, uh, film uh, through the process of framing, uh, so to put into the frame, uh, manage to give another perspective uh, to architecture. And for us, that was quite important because, again, architecture is uh, quite central in all the study that you mentioned before uh, about cinema and the city. So every kind of relationship between the urban space and built environment and cinema has been far uh, more investigated, uh, mainly for this, uh, again, uh, representational perspective. Uh, however, again, uh, the element of uh, such uh, architectural features within uh, domestic space and then within uh, the dispositives uh, has been uh, still a little understudied. Architecture allows us to do that. Architecture, of course, in a more banal way, has been a manifestation of power. If uh, I put tomorrow a set of stairs in order to go to inside the city hall, that means that affects my body. If I decided to add a building in a certain kind of street, and that building is from a new postmodern style instead to have a Victorian style of other houses surrounding the street. Again, I have a different kind of impact towards the community. 
And all of these transfer, transfer to some extent within the domestic space. Domestic space, like other elements of architecture, are present both as a profilmic, so some of these it is in front of a camera and can be used in order to mirror element of social belonging, for instance, or to help a new layer of characterization of a, of a protagonist, or instead can just be rebuilt in order to refer to another kind of architectural style and therefore to have a sort of historical connotation. So it's both about the recreation of sets that have been inspired by architectural feature, but also about like what real, what is the reality of a place where the character dwell, live and perform their actions. I have the feeling that the book is also constructed to function as a bridge of sorts, that there is also a specific architecture or dramaturgy in your book one can find. It seems to me that we start with chapters in which we are still a little attached to the representative mode. Then comes the chapter by Beth Carroll, the sixth of 13 chapters, entitled Acoustic Ectoplasm and the Loss of Home. I have the feeling that this is, in a way, a turning point chapter in your book. From here on, the analysis opens up more and more to the off-screen, so that the representation mode and the concept of the dispositive are more and more conceived as situated along parallel lines. Beth Carroll, for example, starts with a reflection of the house as a physical space that can become a home. She continues with a reflection on the connection between the sounds in the haunted house genre and the sounds in the lived physical environment. Carol explores that the sounds commonly deployed in the haunted house generate a link to the sounds we encounter in our everyday lives. Our homes, as she says, tell, quote, their own stories of rusting pipes, creaking doors and unseen windows, unquote. And she asks to what extent the past of particular spaces is stored in these sounds and in that form presented as an echo in the immediacy of our lives. And in this way, she unfolds a very dense analysis of sound as a conveyor of penetrable borders, as she says. She also reflects, by the way, on political and urban planning issues and so on related to sound. Well, in short, Beth Carroll's argumentation really moves between on and off screen dimensions of sound. As I said, I have the impression that this moving between on and off screen becomes more and more apparent in both in her chapter and then in the following chapters. I don't know, is this a principle of order that helps the readers to cross this bridge from the representative mode to an amalgamation of on and off screen modes? Or have I read too much into it? No, I guess you didn't. It, that's absolutely perfect. And we were really glad, I guess, that, uh, you know, the kind of work that we did to articulate the structure of the book is actually, has actually worked. <laughs> so you are our first test uh, to do that. And because as you said, um, yeah, as Stefano said, the idea of architecture. So we planned is moving from, from the idea that architecture really can be seen as a sort of, I don't know, a platform, a conceptual platform to move across on and off screen and uh, a conceptual platform to move across diegesis and extra diegetic um, dimension in a way. So, so I think, yeah, Beth Carroll sort of reflects on this with a particular focus on, on sound 
And the book is really planned in a way that we try to convey the, the sense of bringing together a focus on, on genre and representation of space on the one hand, and, and then, as you said, going across this bridge and moving on to a more off-screen focus and, and dispositive focus, if you like, where the, the, the physical space where the moving images are experienced really respond to what, what happens on screen. Let's talk briefly about the chapters you yourself have contributed to the volume. Miriam, your contribution is entitled Dwelling the Open, Amos Gitai and the Home of Cinema. In it, you deal very intensively with a multimedia, multi-channel video installation by the Israeli director and artistic researcher Amos Gitai, Architectures of Memory. What questions did you ask about his work and why is Amos Gitai's work so well suited for your reflection on domesticity? Well, the short answer to this is that Gitai is trained as an architect. And so the treatment of space in both his films and installation is affected by his awareness of spatial dynamics. So clearly using his work to look into space, to, to try to research how space works was an interesting, an interesting starting point for me. And then I guess Gitai's own research offers a perfect synthesis between house and home. And that's something that I, I sort of realized while I was writing. That was not, uh, you know, uh, my, my f starting point at all. Yeah, I think it, it really serves well to bring together these two concepts, which, you know, would deserve a, a book in itself own, only. So domestic space as a constructed environment with a predominant physical dimension on the one hand, and if you like, conceived as a dispositive to illicit dwelling, as well as a place of one's own to echo Virginia Woolf, if you like. So it is really, it was really an interesting project that I saw years ago and always remained there. And I was probably just waiting for the right moment to get it out of my drawer and out of my memory and, and look, look on that. So when, when Stefan and I first thought about this project, I realized that was probably yeah, a good case study to work on. And, and again, the, the house in Jitai and in architectures of memory in particular is endowed with a set of values, of meanings. It mirrors a certain identity, a specific history, and these really favored the development of a story. So I played a bit around this idea of the domestic as personal and intimate and tried to expand in the direction of a collective identity. Well, individual identities are always contextualizing in broader cultural identities, don't they? So I thought that was an important work to, to start from, to think about domestic space. The approach you have chosen is interdisciplinary. You have included approaches on film studies, philosophy, Heidegger's space and place, and geography. I really like the citation of the feminist geographer Doreen Massey. Please give us an idea of Massey's understanding of space, which was important for your analysis. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Doreen Massey's work on 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 geography is is absolutely 
super rich, so I only use part of, of her work. And I have to acknowledge that this was something I really owe to my colleague and, and dear friend, Catherine Fowler, because together with her, uh, we've been working together on, on these, these ideas of space and place and, and Massey played a, a hugely important role. So, so in short, for Massey, the idea of space is, is, is really something that is constituted through interactions it's something that is never finished, basically. So to say it is really something uh, under construction that, that can carry on being under construction is something in the process of being. I really like this idea of, of openness and ongoingness, and I use those to reflect upon the work Architectures of Memory because the installation brings together different filmic materials that belong originally belong to films, so to feature-length films that are repurposed and, and set up in, in space. And also the same installation was proposed with a different title, Traces, in Paris at the Palais de Tokyo. So I really like the idea of, you know, the different shape that this work uh, took. And now anyway, in whatever shape or form the work took, was actually responding really well to a sort of inquiry into what space is, what home is, what belonging and identity are in relation to how we leave space, which is in the end what, what domesticity is about. So yeah, I tried to play a little bit around these, these terms and basically couple this with a rather reflection on, on the location of cinema and how uh, cinema and moving images actually are in space and allow us to dwell in space. And can you try to summarize in a nutshell what conclusions you were able to draw from your close reading of Architecture of Memory? Well, the conclusion is that there is no conclusion. <laughs> so my chapter is titled Dwelling the Open, and that was a way for me to actually hint at the idea that When we dwell, when we are in space, we sort of give a particular meaning to space. We turn it into our own place. And I find that this is something that happens and is elicited and is favoured by cinema. So there is a connection between, you know, feeling in one's own space and, and being there and setting uh, one's identity, one's mark. And at the same time, doing this through through moving images. So the architecture of our memory is something that is actually constructed and articulated, you know, starting from very different materials. But our visual culture, our cinematographic memory and encyclopedia, if you like, play a very, very important part on that. The nice, the nice thing is that it is open, so there is more to come. Stefano, your chapter is entitled At Home with the Nouvelle Vague, Apartment Plots and Domestic Urbanism in Godard's Une Femme et Une Femme and uh, Varda's Cléo de 5 à 7. You start your chapter with a reflection on Henri Lefebvre's work on the urban revolution and you make a connection to the early films of the Nouvelle Vague. Would you like to explain this connection and briefly describe the research question you subsequently developed? Well, this is quite a well-established, let's say, approach to the Nouvelle Vague, that is the relationship by this youth, this new generation coming up in France, 
and the use of uh, urban space. So when there is this big change after World War II, particularly through the 1950s uh, of uh, the space of Paris in particular. So this idea of uh, the new commercialization, the new consumerism, uh, and the rapid changes that are occurring within the, the city and the architecture of the city, but also the different way and approach in which, uh, in particular, these youth, uh, they, they start to use the different uh, public space, the social space of the city. And of course, the Nouvelle Vague to the camera, went to the street uh, and uh, represented there, represented glimpses of everyday life, represented glimpses of over, uh, overarching between the world of uh, film, cinema, etc., and a real space, uh, which is, uh, again, everyday life, urban space. And this has been uh, also an uh, approach not only for the French uh, new waves, so not only for Nouvelle Vague, but also has been argued that every time there is this sort of urban revolution that is changing the approach and news of the urban space uh, reach different countries across the world, also to some extent that coincides with the emergence of a new wave cinema in that place as well. That was a starting point because, again, as we discussed before, let's talk about social space as a matter of scale. So scale means that the body lives within a certain kind of domestic space, domestic space within a community, the community within an urban space, urban space within a nation, nation with a global, and so on and so forth. So the different spaces are quite interconnected, are not just living on their own. It's difficult to put hard borders between the different kind of scales. And therefore, the idea was like, great, we know about this urban revolution, we know about uh, how much Nouvelle Vague actually had a role in uh, representing it, but also in some extent uh, leaving it be almost a uh, can I say manifestation of the changes of use of the space. So let's see if that applies also in the domestic space. Let's see if uh, the apartments that are often portrayed within the Nouvelle Vague films are actually different of the apartment of domestic space that were present in the previous cinema. Let's see in which way these apartments are linked or not with the changes occurring in the urban space and in the city. Mm. And uh, Lefebvre is very fruitful for you, it seems to me, because there is another uh, Lefebvrean concept, the system of object that uh, is important in your chapter, where you deal with the question how objects Yeah, our identity and the identities of characters are dealing with objects or are built through objects. Could you summarize this reflection? Because I have the opinion that this is also very important for your, for your reflection on your chapter. Well, this is a concept that's been, uh, been developed within material culture in particular. And it is the basic idea that, you know, we always have this approach that uh, if we take out like everything we have, if we take off our clothes and we just uh, give away of our possession, that's the only way in which we find our true self, you know, that what we own is just a sort of mask that we put on in order to hide from the world what we really are. Instead, from a material culture perspective, that is not really the case. We are what we own. We are the object we use every day. Objects have an impact in our everyday life. If tomorrow I wake up 
and my car doesn't start, probably the battery has been flat because of a lockdown, that as an agency all my life is not just something that happened completely separated from me. And the uh, object uh, managed to manifest uh, to show matter of uh, social class, uh, matter of community belongings, matter of national belonging, and so on. So that is the idea that uh, where the object dwell, the object dwell in our house. This is our museum of our personal life. The house uh, has been organized across uh, everyday life movement that we make, across routine with the family. There is the chair, there is a chair where the kids sit, there is the other uh, office in the house where is the desk of the father. There are all these set of rules, if you want, uh, that the family put in place that are very special rules and they always work around objects and, uh, and different kinds of domestic space and performances. As a huge fan of Agnes Bardai, I was very happy about your case selection. Would you like to give us a little insight into your results concerning Cleo? Sorry, Godin. For Cleo, it's, it's, um, what is interesting because, again, Cleo is a good uh, again expression of what uh, I talked before in the sense that it's a film that, again, has been uh, studied uh, in particular from the brilliant representation of Paris and the, the representation of uh, these the woman approach towards the urban space uh, and the different kind of itinerary with his Paris and what that means uh, and so on. That uh, the house, the apartment, always being used just as a step. However, is it interesting because that apartment, it is again the manifestation more clearly of identity, of a character. And this is an identity which is built mainly on the idea of performance. She's a singer, she's a model, and so on and so forth. So that was the idea. The idea was actually to look at the apartment, the object, but also how Cleo leaves the apartment in respect to the city in order to draw some basic conclusion that is actually is a way to underline, once again, one of the key elements of a novel vague filmmaking, which is this, this lack, if you want, of barrier between the cityscape and the apartment. The two places are always interconnected, the two places communicated all the time, and there is not, uh, and the conclusion of that, sorry, is that it's difficult to create an identity based on intimacy or privacy, etc., because this sort of identity is built within this relationship, the use of this uh, urban space, the urban revolution space of Lefebvre, and uh, this continuity within instead the private space, the personal museum of your everyday life. Finally, I know it, it is difficult to single out particular contributions, but maybe you could briefly mention the chapters which, in your view, open up the range of the ontology for us, so to speak. Well, it's always difficult to do that. Uh, when uh, we decided to put together this anthology, the idea is to have a different kind of perspective. We wanted it to be like a showcase of different kind of possible approaches to, again, an understudied uh, element of a uh, social space and an important one, like the domestic one. Uh, for me, like uh, John David Rhodes uh, is a very is an important contribution. It is uh, it follows the book that is uh, just published uh, on again the topic on uh, colonial style and architecture and so on, and is a very uh, diligent, let's say, study of a kind of uh, use of a particular architectural style in this case 
in order to represent a particular kind of class, time, period, and so on. Miriam, would you like to add? Well, it, it's the work. most difficult question you could pose because obviously, you know, all contributors uh, are super special, extraordinary writers for us. So it's really, really difficult to just pick one. I don't know, probably I could act as the feminist I am and, and mention uh, the important work by Anna Bachmann-Rogers and Maud Chetterick, which actually are following one to the other in the book and sort of, you know, tackle the idea of domesticity from a feminist point of view but at the same time there are particular focuses that we were really really glad to be able to include like the work uh, by Lukas Prajiskis and Nerius Milierius uh, on post-Soviet Baltic films which is something that really is rarely uh, studied and yeah I'm, I'm absolutely unable to just pick one honestly My heart is, is with Laura Rascaroli's chapter as well. So, yeah, I guess you should all ju just read them all. I totally agree with that because, I mean, as I said, for me, it's a bridge and it's a, a beautiful bridge you can cross. And as for every bridge, you need every chapter. Otherwise, the bridge would fall apart. So thank you very much for the interview for the anthology and the inspiration your ongoing work in the field of space and film is able to generate thank you Miriam thank you Stefano my thank you thank you thank you for having us here's my dear diary in episode number six which was published on March 20th I reported on my first experiences with my citizen research project the cinematic face of Potsdam On May the 6th, the first part of a three-part blog post I authored about this project appeared on the Open Media Studies blog. In it, I proposed a definition of citizen research and reported on what I found challenging and what worked well in my project. This post was the first extended blog post I have written, so I'm light years away from Jan Christopher Horrocks' experience in writing blog posts. Currently, I'm working on a blog post about podcasts in media and film studies. With these first two blog posts, I was able to make an interesting observation. Writing for my doctorate wasn't a torture or anything, but it was a pretty impressive thing. In my monograph, I spoke a very academic language, and I gave more or less free rein to my love of tape-warm sentences. My dissertation has become quite an elaborate book as a result. Also, I concentrated very much on the writing of this particular work, publishing very little besides. In my postdoc project, I approached the matter differently. Instead of working solely on a monograph, I've decided to produce papers on certain aspects of my research project over the year and to write blog entries about particular elements. The blog entry in the Open Media Studies blog on my citizen research project was an example of this approach, as is my piece on podcasting. And I must say that I currently like this piece-by-piece -piece approach very much. While blogging, I feel I'm writing a little more freely in the sense of allowing myself to be a bit more opinionated and as in the podcast to talk simply about my own experiences in my own name. I would describe this as a kind of 
step-by-step writing that I find very satisfying because results are more immediately discernible. The development of a concise writing style involves in present time, so to speak, and within a manageable framework. This contrasts with my experience in writing for my doctorate, a process spread over hundreds of pages. Blog writing against that background was a very nice writing experience. By the way, after the interview, Jan Christopher Horak pointed out that writing book reviews is also a very good way to train one's own writing style. He said that writing is an art form that needs to be practiced. You can't always work on a big monograph, but you also have to practice in smaller formats. Okay, coming back to blog writing, part of the pleasure had to do with the way I was able to internalize for the first time the skill of placing meaningful links in a text. I don't know if I've really succeeded in doing this. Still, I definitely found it very enriching to think about how I might guide readers beyond the text I was producing and the explicitly cited sources. In short, I currently enjoy writing, and this has to do with the form of a blog, among other things. And with these somewhat more optimistic thoughts, we come to the end of this episode. In the next episode, I'm very happy to present Raya Morak as Bling of the Month. She is Associate Professor of Cinema Studies at the Department of Communication and Journalism at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Thank you for being part of Film Studies Blingling. If you would like to present your research or spread news, please contact me at a.kiss at filmuniversität.de. And I'm also pleased about feedback and suggestions. Until next time.